glad that you're here uh, this morning. want to say again hello to many of you watching and listening and online. And as the bumper video just showed us, uh, this is our series, our main series for the year, the book of Ephesians. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, we'd love you to open that up or virtually go there to Ephesians chapter 2. And that's where we're going to hang out today as we're looking at our extraordinary God, our extraordinary gospel, our extraordinary unity, and what God is doing as we just saw even around uh, the world. It was Thursday night this week, and uh, the kids were finally in bed. My wife was upstairs watching I'm not sure what, uh, and I was just taking a moment uh, underneath my lit Christmas tree. Oh, yes. That's right. Just want to say that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We have five in our house this year. Three on the floor, and my two girls have their own. Oh, yes, it's growing. So anyway, uh, and I was sitting there, and I was sort of flipping through the channels, and there was nothing really on, and I went up to the higher channels, and suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, uh, there was a TV show on that I've mentioned before that I don't uh, usually watch, but it was on, and it was, I said, sure. So it was the Antiques Roadshow, the BBC edition. Now, that's the real one, in my opinion, by the way. Uh, the Canadian-American one, it just, listen, the accent makes it right. You know what I'm saying? Everything seems more, I don't know, dignified. They're always at someone's house that's the size of this church that's now a museum. And I love when they do this. Do you notice it's like everyone's over 85 and then there's one teenager at every gathering. So this is what's going on. But this was a unique one um, because they said, uh, they went to the experts and they said, look, I mean, you've done this for 30 or 40 years what do, what do people bring in that they think is so valuable and isn't valuable at all? And then what do other people bring in? Like, what do you see? And uh, they said, well, one guy said, I, I can tell you exactly what it is. For 30 years, hundreds, thousands of people have brought in one item. It's the Singer, uh, what do you call them, uh, sewing machine. They, 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 by the thousands, people come right across North America and in England, and they're over 110 years old, and they're in pristine condition, and because they're so well-made, they work, and the grandmother and the great-grandmother pass them down, so they're all excited, you know, they're in the line, and they're coming because they think this is valuable, and he says, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. They do it so kindly with a British, you know, no, it's worth 10 pounds. And he was talking about how, what people thought were valuable. But then, he, then the woman asked, well, okay, what do people bring in that they think isn't worth very much and is? He, well, let me give you an example. He, um, this woman brought in this small little piece of jade. And, and so I watched this. And so the expert was there and talking to the woman. And of course, everyone's surrounding like, oh, mm, right? And, then, and, and he says, well, you know, this is very beautiful. And he begins to describe why it's carved. There's a dog and there's a lion and there's these other things. It means long life. I'm like, okay. And then he, he drops the he goes, now, unfortunately, it's not creamy milk jade. I'm like, okay, whatever that means. And he said, so if it was worth, if it was this other jade, I love when they do this, it would be 20 times worth the value. And you're like, oh, now it's worth nothing, right? So they set the person up. Everyone's like, oh, I'm so sorry. You wasted your time, right? The teenager's texting in the background. So uh, as this is going on, and he says, so let me take a look. And he says, yeah, it's this mixed jade. And, you know, it's old. But, you know, he said, so it's probably worth around 14,000 pounds. And everyone's like, oh, 
great. And they all, they don't get really excited. They go, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's quite a, I have never done, right? But as I was watching this show, it, it struck me. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of people watch the show, first of all, because we all want the experience. We want to be like, Frank, Frank, get in here. We have that teacup. We're going to be mortgage free, right? Like that's, right? That's what everyone wants. My grandmother gave me that. I saw that. Oh, it's awesome. We're going to Aruba. Like that's the mentality. We're all, all hoping that we've got something in the attic that actually is worth something. But as they were talking about this, millions of people attending these events, they said the majority of stuff that comes isn't worth anything, and people think it's worth so much. And much of the stuff people bring that they think is worth nothing is actually worth the most. Well, as I was watching this unfold, I was thinking about this message. Because that is exactly what Paul in Ephesians 2 chooses to do. He talks about what the human race brings before God and whether it's truly valuable or not. And the truth is, the human race is bringing the singer to God all the time, and it's not worth what we think. Now, what's really important as we get into this today, and I want everyone's attention today, please, no matter where you're coming from, whether you're a skeptic and a doubter, or you're genuinely seeking, or you've just become a Christian, or you've been a Christian for a while, no matter where you are on that spectrum, I I want your attention today. Because what Paul is about to do here is not only clarify the gospel, he is also going to build profound unity within the body of Jesus as he talks about our history. He's going to talk to us this morning about what has profound value and what has no value at all. And by the end of this message, every single one of us is going to know what's in our hands. Now Ephesians, like we said, is the grand book. It is the great book in the New Testament about Christian unity. And since, as we've been saying all day today, our theme this year is we're all in this together, we must, as a community, see, learn, define, and become what our God defines unity really to be. And so remember where we started a few weeks ago. Paul starts his conversation in Ephesians 1 with unbelievable encouragement. And he gives us his thoughts in unity. He spent all that time showing us what God has already done for us. That God the Father elected us. And God the Son died in our place. And God the Son keeps praying for us. And God the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he was telling us that our unity is grounded in and it's guaranteed in Jesus' work. And then last week, remember if you were here with us or watched online. Paul, knowing that even though God has been so amazing and so loving and so kind and has already, that's the key word, already changed us, his profound work and our unity still can be threatened, forgotten, misplaced, ignored, or misunderstood. So what did he do? He did what he could only do. He began to pray, and he started praying prayers like this. Oh, God, would you do this in the church I'm working for and loving? Oh, God, give them and us more of the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, open Christians' eyes to see what has already been done. Oh, God, grow our hope. Oh, God, reveal our value. Oh, God, unleash your power in the church so it actually is a place of authentic change. But Paul at this moment is far from done building unity and clarifying and showing the calling God has for us in every church. So he moves from showing us promise after promise after promise. And then he he utters prayer after prayer after prayer. And then Paul does it. Paul right here decides to take on the biggest possible point of disunity in his day in the churches he's working for. 
Here's what he's facing down in his context. How could he help heal the breach between Jewish people and non-Jewish people who have both met Jesus? I mean, these people did not hang out with each other. They did not like each other. There's history, racism, religiosity. Like the gap is massive. And yet now, both of these groups have met Jesus. Now they're in this church thing together. How can unity take place? How does it become true? How is it not just superficial, but it's known, it's powerful, it's real? Well, Paul decides to do the absolute opposite of what he did in chapter 1. What he decides to do here is significant. He decides to say and describe things that are disconcerting to everyone who will hear and read this letter. But his goal is to build our unity while he does it and invite people to meet the one who gives us unity. See, Paul chooses at this moment to remind them and all of us of what we all were before we met Jesus. He decides to paint the picture of what we were all in this together pre-Jesus. Now, this painting that I'm about to preach through is agitating. It is a devastating picture of what was before. And why is he doing it? Because he wants our now to be clear and our future to be very hopeful. His goal in bringing up our history is not to damage anyone in this church or his church. God did not inspire Paul to discourage us or kill faith, hope, and love. No, Paul, under the power of God, is bringing up our mutual history to inform our future. Our togetherness, he's about to say, is found in and bounded in a common terrible history and an unbelievable common grace and salvation. And so Paul starts his conversation in chapter 2 after he's taken us almost right up into heaven with all the encouragement and prayer. And he plunges us down like a roller coaster all the way down to the shadow of death. He decides we're in the line and we're bringing what we think is valuable and he's going to say to us, it's worth nothing. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 reads like this. Oh church, hear the word of God this morning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. Now as for you, by the way, he's starting to refer to non-Jews. He'll get to the Jews in a minute who are Christians. He says, as for all of you who were non-Jews, he's going to say later to all of us, but for here, this is what you were before you met Jesus, and this description cannot be changed, avoided, or ignored. See, Paul says that the trouble that we have as human beings is not that we're just having a bad day, or we're just out of harmony, or we have like a bad spiritual cold, or actually it's not even that we're in the hospital the rest of our lives spiritually. No, no. He says this, we are dead. We're not in the hospital. We're actually in the morgue. The funeral home is our real home spiritually. This is not metaphor. This is not just some conversation about future things. This is humanity's present condition in every generation. All human beings, he is declaring, are spiritually lifeless and motionless. From top to bottom, everyone is dead. There are no exceptions. This is universal, utter, total, and conclusive. And, and we sit here in the North, North American context, sitting here outside of Toronto... And we're going, no, 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 hold on, Paul, not fair. Like, before I was a Christian, I was most definitely alive. And when I hang out and, and I'm with my friends who aren't Christians, they, some are Muslims or Buddhists or religiously Jewish or they're atheists, or agnostic, they're not dead. My family, my friends, they're not dead. I mean, 
They're not Christians, but how, please, how can this be? I love what one, one person said. Their bodies are virile and robust, no question. We all have quick, active intellects. We're all brimming with personality. But the answer that Paul is driving home is this. In the area which matters most, that is the soul, they have no life. They are blind to the reality and the demands and the glory of Jesus. They do not love him. They are deaf to the Holy Spirit as a spiritual corpse. Abba, Father, calling God Daddy, has no part in their vocabulary. Or as John Stott wrote so long ago, we should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God through Christ, though physically fit and mentally alert a person might be, is living death, and those who live it are dead even while they're living. And you thought that the zombie thing was a new thing. Hmm. This is the declaration of Scripture that we are all dead. And then he says to pile it on, not only are you dead spiritually, but we've all been marked by trust, transgressions, and sins. We have all missed the mark. We've all slipped. We've all fallen away. We've all fallen off the path. In our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds, it is a continual, deliberate violation of God's will and law. We regularly, as human beings, trespass into places we're not allowed to go. We have a debt, a mortgage before God we can never pay off. We are involved in iniquity, iniquity and, and, and wickedness. Our, our natural self-inclination as human beings is we are selfish. Or as another stated, sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. And Paul says, whether you're religious or not, we've all done this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient. He said, every one of you used to live. In Greek, that means to walk in. It is how you thought. It is how you acted. Step after step, the thing that characterized you was this. And he says, while you were walking in this, you were participating in this thing called the world. Now, this is very important for all of us to get this morning. I was teaching this this weekend, too, at one of our Connect, uh, connect gatherings. I want you to hear this. The word world is used 186 times in the New Testament. And when all of us hear the word world who have grown up in church, we think, oh, isn't that nice? We're the world, like it's the ball that we're all on, or, or it's all the people. But what we miss is this, almost every instance in the New Testament where the word world is used, it has an evil connotation. It actually means it is the present, fallen, broken state. It is the age that God has been removed of. And it takes a thousand forms. Secularism, we don't need God. Uh, an amoral worldview, we don't need absolutes. Maybe it's materialism. The greatest thing I can do is have more things. Or maybe it's religiosity in all its forms. I will prove myself to God by what I do. Look how good I am, God. I, I pray five times a day, or I pray to my ancestors, or I went to confession. Don't you know I help the poor? Look at me, God, and see how great I am. Maybe it's spirituality. We invent what we want when we want, and how we want. But don't you see there's no difference? Secularism, being amoral, deeply materialistic, religious, deeply moral, spiritual, they all end up in one place, and it's you. You end up with human beings. God is not at the center. We are at the center. And that is what the world means. Does that change how you read John 3.16? For God so loved this broken, fallen, rebellious, finger-in-his-face world that he sent his son. 
That should elevate the love of God for everyone in this room. He says, know it or not, believe it or not, not only were you dead, marked by transgression and sin, not only did you live in a world that perpetually promotes theologies, philosophies, and governments that say, God, well, sort of by our own sense. He said, also, there's something else involved. There is this thing, this being called Satan, the devil. He is not metaphor. He is not invented by people scared in the dark ages. No, no, he is real. And this so-called God of the world, this ruler of the kingdom of the air, the one who, oh, here it is, owns the world age, the one who oversees and organizes all principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities, who controls and moves all spiritual forces of wickedness to wage war against God, wage war against his people, and keeps humanity in bondage. Oh, by the way, whether you love this idea idea or not, you were owned by him too. Now, is that saying that everyone who's not a Christian is like a Satanist? No. It's about ownership. Now, you, none of us like the idea that we're, we're, we're influenced by peers. I don't give them to peer pressure. We do all the time. And this is on the highest height. It's what Paul would say in a different letter in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot, they cannot, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There are some of you sitting here today and watching online, you've been coming to this church and you are desperate to meet Jesus and you keep saying, I don't know why I can't say yes right here. See, this is a powerful, powerful declaration. And there you have it, by the way. There is the unholy trinity arrayed against humanity. Sin, the world, and the devil. Now, he has said, all of you. Now, Paul, right here, is about to throw the biggest personal bombshell he can down because he wants to build unity. See, then Paul says this. This is very hopeful. He says, and it's not just all you people out there. He says, actually, it's me too. It's all of us. There is no room, he's saying in the church, for holier than thou. He says, verse 3, notice it. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. All of us. Paul says, just so you know, it's me too. Actually, it's all the Jews and all the non-Jews. Everything I said about you is true of me. Everything that's true about me is true about you. And oh, by the way, we're all in this together, and it gets worse. Now, don't miss the wow of this this morning, please. Never forget the power of what Paul just stated. Why? Because remember, Paul is saying that the most religious Jew and the most unreligious non-Jew, the religious, the secular, the pagan, the spiritual, were all in the same boat. And who's Paul, by the way? Paul is the best product of religious Judaism 2,000 years ago, and he never, ever would have believed that he was equal or as in the same trouble as all those Zeus-worshipping people down the street. I'm part of God's people. I have God's Bible. I have a marriage relationship through the people of God with God. Do you want to know how profound I was? I love how in Philippians 3, Paul outlines his job description of what he was. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in who they are, their flesh, oh, I've got more. Sit down, kids. Let me tell you the real story. 
He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law. Oh, here it is, faultless. This is who I used to be. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I bear the badge on my body of God's people. And not only that, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm part of the people that God decided to say, you're my people. Not you people, me. And not only that, I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. We all go, well, what's the deal with that? Well, let me tell you. The tribe of Benjamin has utmost importance in Israel's history. He is the only patriarch to be born in the promised land. Benjamin... Benjamin is where the first king of Israel came from. Saul was a Benjamite. And not only that, when Israel used to go to war, Benjamin had the place of honor. They would walk in front of the army, and it would be declared this, after thee, O Benjamin, do we follow you. So I'm part of the elite of the elite. Oh, and if if you're unsure still, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You go, well, I don't understand. Here it is. Paul wasn't born in Israel. He was born in the diaspora, what they call the Jewish community that was living in the Roman world. But unlike all his relatives and friends who compromised and couldn't speak God's language anymore, they could only speak Latin and Greek. I speak God's language still. I'm part of the aristocracy of the Jews. And oh, by the way, in regards to God's book, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not just an Orthodox Jew. No, no, I'm one of the separated ones. My whole life is dedicated to following God's law and all the other laws that have been written. And by the way, I did it because I've got a faultless record. And I'm persecuting people, these Christians, who are perverting our faith. Now, what I love about this is Paul the Pharisee would never say that he was in trouble with God. Paul the Pharisee would never say he's dead in his trespasses. Paul the deeply religious, PhD beyond PhD thinker, would never see, say, I need God's mercy like that. But now Paul the Christian has come to see that none of that covered anything before a holy God. He brought the singer and God said, it's worth nothing. He said, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following the desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. We're all in this together. Our longings, our impulses, our self-centered, our purpose, our intellect, our thoughts, our wills, our emotions, all touched by sin. We may not all be equally depraved, but we are all totally depraved. And if that's true this morning, then what's being declared is it's not that we're just sick. We're not born good. The phrase that I'm all right and you're all right isn't true. The image is grim. We're spiritually dead. We're enslaved to sin. We're even owned by a spiritual force that half of us in this church don't even really believe exist. And he's saying this is inescapable. All the sayings you hear in the suburbs, well, I'm not that good, but I'm not perfect, but God knows, or God knows I'm trying, or look at all the other people, God, that are way worse off than me. I, I mean, I'm no, I'm no murderer. He says, not good enough. What's all the result of trespass, sin, chosen brokenness? From our original hiddenness, all of us now are alienated from God, alienated from each other, from creation itself. Harmony is now disharmony. Peace is now war. Perfection is now marred. And each one of us, the whole human family, has ever since Eve and Adam been born into sin. And we willingly, whether we love it or not, have joined in the rebellion. And each generation reaffirms the idea that we do not need to know, love, or obey God on his terms. And Paul says we're under the wrath of God. 
We're under the wrath of God because he is perfect and we walked away. The worst, the best, the most religious, the most unreligious, the weak, the powerful, the educated. This is our condition. And the wrath is real because we've participated in rebellion. Now Paul says, this is us. Now if I stop preaching now, it's going to be the worst sermon ever. It'd be like the movie that you think is going to be really exciting and then it's terrible because everyone dies in the end. But that's not how the story ends. This is how the story begins. Because after Paul paints this unbelievably uncomfortable picture, even for many of you who are Christians, then he says, but God. That's tweetable. But God. But our God broke in. But our God is love. But our God, despite the desperation, but God above the frantic, but our God over hopelessness, but our God over distress and distraction, but our God over the dead, over brokenness, over the condition fraught with so many barriers, but our God came for us. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace You have been saved. Mercy, undeserved given love, kindness, it is above and beyond, it is lavish, it is rich, and it is unexpected. It's what Jesus' best friend John wrote in 1 John 4, 9, and this is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This, I love this, this is love. Not that we loved God, But he loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His love reached down into us, and Jesus by his birth, and Jesus by his life, and Jesus by his ministry, and Jesus by his death, and Jesus by his resurrection, and Jesus by his ascension, by all he is, and all he has done, and all he is doing, has swept away all the darkness that is in our lives, and he's declared them done. Think about a funeral for a moment. It may be painful for some of you, but think about it. You walk into a funeral home, the casket's there, the flowers. It's an open casket. Family and friends are milling around. The person in the casket is wearing clothes that if you're the relative, you've probably chosen. It could be their best suit or or, or their favorite dress. But interestingly, have you ever thought about it? The clothes that they valued the most now have become grave clothes. We don't bandage people anymore, but that's what they are. At the end, the casket is closed, the service is done. Now go in the limo with me. You're in the limo and you go where? To the graveyard. Graveyards are beautiful, aren't they? They really are. But it's beauty covering death. You walk into the graveyard and surrounding you are thousands and thousands of tombstones. The reminder that this is 100% for all of us. And since you're from a rich family, congratulations, you didn't know. You own a mausoleum. Your own one. In the middle of it. And so the body of your relative is put in and and the door is locked, and you're so wealthy, actually, that you hire security 24 hours a day to stand in front of it so no one can disturb it. See, that is the condition of every human being on earth. But Jesus comes, and he walks into the graveyard, and he looks around, and he says, that one. 
He walks up to the guard and says, you're done, move to the side. And when he resists him, he overcomes him. He breaks the locks on the door. He walks into the mausoleum. He actually opens up the casket. He looks at the person and says, come to life. Their eyes open, though they have been dead. He takes them out of the casket. He takes off their clothes that are grave clothes. He gives them new clothes and says, now will you believe in me? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of what is being declared in the scriptures. That is why the phrase, it is by grace you have been saved, has such power. By mercy, God's love, God's work, God's invitation, we are saved. You've been made right with God. You've been made right with God, and you will be made right with God. There is nothing now between you and God anymore because Jesus has paid it all. And it says not only if that is not enough, verse 6, and God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And we've talked about this. The heavenly realms is not heaven. The heavenly realms in Paul is the supernatural space. It is the spiritual part of capital R reality that is filled with God and angels, but also the devil and his forces. It is the place of battle and power. And Jesus has been raised in that place. And we have now been raised with him and we are now seated in Jesus, and since we are positionally seated with Jesus, as Jesus is over the evil one, and as Jesus is over death, and as Jesus is over sin, so we are also. We are in him forever, and everything that used to bind us and hold us and keep us down is now under our feet. This is the power of our identity in Christ when we really embrace the full reality of the gospel. I love that Calvin once wrote that Jesus lifted us up from the deepest of hells to heaven itself. And why did he do all this? Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he may show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We together are God's crowning display and achievement. Out of everything that's ever been created, everything that will ever be created by human beings, every song, every building, every great philosophy, even God's own creation, it is declared that we are his greatest achievement. We, as one said, a pardoned society of rebels is designed to be his masterpiece forever. And then he says it. At this moment, he brings it home. Here he summarizes the gospel. Are you not a Christian this morning? Listen to this, because this is what we hold. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works, so no person can boast. There is the death of religion right there. There is no room to know God through what you do. The only way you get to know God is through knowing him as he comes to you. No self-effort, no merit, no reliance. There is no other crutch except Jesus. Salvation is a God's deal, and he says, by faith, embrace what I've already done. I preached this a while ago. Let me use it again. Do you remember the story I told about the man who fell in the pit? And all the different people came. It says, a man fell in a pit. And a subjective person came along and said, wow, I, mm, I feel you down there in that pit. And the objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that someone fell down on that pit. The Christian scientist came along and said, you only think it's a pit, just so you know. The Pharisee said only bad people fall into pits, so obviously you're bad. The mathematician calculated how you fell into the pit. Uh, the news reporter said, well, can I have the exclusive story of how you got into the pit? The fundamentalist just said, well, you deserve the pit. 
Confucius said, well, if you'd listened to me, you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha said, you, your, your pit is only a state of mind. The realist said, well, that's a pit. The ge- geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. The inspector asked, well, do you have a permit for that pit? Uh, the professor gave him a lecture on the principles of the pit. The enslaved person and the evasive person came along and said, well, well I don't even want to talk about the pit, so walked away. The self-pitting person said, oh, you haven't seen a pit until you've seen my pit, all right? Uh, the optimist said, well, things could get worse, and the pessimist said, things will get worse. But I want you to notice, no one got in the pit. Our gospel declares that Jesus Christ, who is God himself, comes down from heaven and he says, like the realist, that is a pit, and he does not stop there. He gets in the pit, he finds us in the pit, he says, hold on to my back, he pulls us out of the pit, and he sets us free. That's the power of it. It was the Catholic scholar Hans Kung who said, sinners stand with empty hands before God. And God comes and he makes us alive. And God comes and gives us ability to see and gives us the ability to respond and calls us out of the casket, takes our grave clothes off, moves the guards away and says, will you now not believe? Of course you'll believe. Of course you will say in faith, I trust in Jesus. Of course you're going to declare, I want him. Why would you not want someone who does that? It is by faith. It is by complete trust in Jesus Christ that people are brought in relationship with God. And then Paul culminates his grand epic statement this way, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do, good, to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, church. We are his art. We actually, this is how it reads in Greek, you are God's forever poem. We are the poem of God that God the great artist is writing. We are not just the first creation. We are his second creation. But here is what the caveat is. And why did God call you? And why did God set you free? And why did Jesus take you out of the casket? So you could sit in church and think you're better than the rest of the world? No. Never. You've been saved for a purpose. We have been saved at the church not to become moralists or think that we're better than anyone else. No, no. We have been saved... To tell others there is good news. We're saved to serve. We're called to call others. We're elected to elicit response. We are adopted to actually do acts of love. We are sealed to lead others to salvation. Works never save you. But church, works are a sign that you're saved. If there is no evidence of Jesus in your life, Jesus probably is not in your life. We have been ordinary people. We have been called by a living living God. And here's the point. Our unity and our service is directly connected to what we were and what he's done. We have an extraordinary God, an extraordinary unity, an extraordinary gospel. We have an extraordinary story for our God is the one who has moved us, as one wrote, from hell to heaven, bondage to freedom, gloom to light, despair to hope, wrath to glory, death to life. Now the question is this morning, since we're all in this together, I think, how does this affect our unity? Like how does this, what we just heard, affect our unity? Well, let me say this. Everyone, attention please. Our unity is absolutely affirmed when it's found in God's work and we never trust in our own. 
Our unity gets unbelievably clear when we know we all were saved from the same thing and none of us are better than anyone else sitting in the room. I love this story I found this week. I've never heard this before. It's from England, probably 100 years ago. True story. A large, prestigious church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of all the mission churches came to the big city church for a combined communion service. It's an Anglican church. In those mission churches were located in those days in the slums of that great city. And some of the most outstanding conversions had been found there. Thieves, burglars, and so on. But all knelt, I love this, feel it together. They all knelt side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. True story. The very judge actually had sent the man to jail, and he had served seven years for his crimes. After his release, the burglar actually had met Jesus, been converted, and become a Christian worker. Yet as they knelt there, the judge and the former convict, neither one seemed to be aware of the other person. And after the service, the judge was walking out, and the pastor said to him, Did you notice... The ju- sorry, the judge said this to the pastor. Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the pastor replied, yes, I-, I did, but I didn't think you noticed. The two walked along in silence for a few moments, and the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, yes, what a, what a miracle of grace that is. And the judge said, well, who do you think I'm referring to? And the pastor said, well, why? Of course, the conversion of the convict. And the judge said, well, no, I'm not referring to him. I'm thinking about me. The pastor was surprised and replied, well, you're thinking of yourself, I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied, it is natural, he said, for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he met Jesus, his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He, he knew he needed so much help, but look at me. I was taught from my earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was my bond. I I was told to say prayers, go to church, take communion. I went to Oxford, I took my degrees, I was called to the bar, and now look, I'm a Supreme Court justice in one of the strongest empires in the world. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive it. I am the greater miracle than him. Our unity will not be compromised in this church if each one of us take the personal responsibility to accept the fact that every one of us, whether we met Jesus at 3 or 12 or 16 or 60 or last week, we have all been saved from the world and the flesh and the devil. There is no room for ego in our movement. And so the Supreme Court justice and a former criminal can sit beside each other and say, you are my brother. This is unnatural in the world, but this is natural in the kingdom of God. When you walk around a church and say, that person used to be dead in trespasses just like me, and, and that person used to be owned by, it humbles us and it builds unity. Why did Paul do this? Because he wanted every Jew and non-Jew that had met Jesus to realize their unity was in their horrific history that had been wiped clean and in the common gospel that says we all need the same Savior. It doesn't mean we won't have to work through things. It doesn't mean we don't have different positions and different gifts. But what I'm saying is unity is established when we have the glasses of Scripture and we are reminded of truth. Our unity is found in our horrific history. If you do not believe that your history is a Christian this morning, it is. Wrestle with the Lord. Not only that, here's the second thing we need to reflect on. As we pray for renewal and revival and awakening in this area, the good news is only greatly good if you understand the bad. 
And here's the truth. All the promises in this passage have to do with our position away from God. And Jesus comes and he does a new profound thing. And so you say, well, John, what is the takeaway beyond the unity piece and my humility and our joint connection together? Here it is. Oh, church, if you want to see awakening in the area, that is to say thousands and thousands of people meeting Jesus who don't want to meet Jesus, this is what you must pray over this region. This is what you have to pray for your friend, your mother, your father, your sister, the the person that hurt you. This is the person, this is the prayer you have to pray over your enemies. This is the prayer we need to pray continually to God. And what is it? Number one, oh God, unblind them so they see their condition. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this age has blinded them. And all of us, we were blind too. There's no arrogance in this prayer, but every devotional prayer, when you pray for Durham and Toronto, you should say, oh God, oh God, oh God, unblind people because without your move, they will never see. And the second thing you must pray and I must pray together is that 2 Corinthians 7.10, that godly sorrow that brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret would replace worldly sorrow that brings death. Do you know how much worldly sorrow there is in this church? Do you know how much worldly sorrow there is in Durham? How many marriages are destroyed? How much drug addiction? How much sexual abuse? How much gar- worldly sorrow always brings death? But godly sorrow brings repentance and life. And there is no regret with Jesus. And so if you are desperate enough and serious enough and determined enough to see that the good news perpetuates itself in Durham, then number one, build the unity of the church because they are looking for an authentic unity. And then pray, oh God, in simple prayers, unblind people because I've got nothing left. And oh God, bring godly sorrow so people know their condition, so they'll look for a savior and they'll find Jesus. Build your unity, pray, and then be expectant. Because just like us, God is going to show up when we do these things. I end with this this morning. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you're watching, listening online here or in another country, and you are not a follower of Jesus. You're not. You may have the title Christian, you may not have it, but you're not. This is, by the way, not the time to start moving around and getting distracted. I want to declare to you this morning as a former person in your condition that I'm no better than you. There's not one person sitting in this church that's more holier than any of you because of what we've done. But I want to declare to you at this moment that it is, as Ange said, no mistake that you are here today. It is no mistake you're listening to this podcast right now, whether now or years in the future. This is not a mistake. And I declare to you this morning in the midst of a world that is marked by hopelessness and darkness and despair, and there is no real hope in the end. There is hope. Love has a name, and his name is Jesus. Love has a voice, and his name is Jesus. Love has demonstrated itself through Jesus. It is the voice of God at this moment, not my voice, it is God's voice that is awakening you and calling you to think and inquire. It is the power of God at this moment that is starting to act in you. It is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead and he is coming at this moment to set you free. I want you never to hear what I've said this morning in this way. God is not upstairs like an abusive, angry dad ready to deal. No, no, that is not what this passage is saying. This passage is describing our chosen condition. If God was not love, he'd let us sit in this. 
This is what he wrote in Romans 5.8. This is for you this morning. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do you do with Jesus this morning? Do you hear his voice at this moment? And will you say yes? Will you cry out and say, come into my graveyard and set me free? It only takes faith and humility. So if this is you, and God has now come for you, unexpectedly or expectedly, whether you're a teenager, a child, a young adult, an adult, or you're a senior, no matter what your background is, if this is the moment where the God of the universe is looking you in the eyes and saying it is time, then respond like this. Church, pray right now for this moment. Say this, God, I say yes to you. Come now into my graveyard. Walk into my mausoleum. Look me in my eyes and tell me to come to life. I want you to take off my grave clothes right now. I declare right now I am dead. I'm in sin. I'm owned by spiritual things. But no more. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. You did it. I believe you're alive. I choose this morning to trust in you. I declare I am not saved by anything I have ever done or will do. It is by your grace that I am saved as I say yes to you. I will not put trust anymore in what I trusted in 10 minutes ago, an hour ago, a day ago, a year ago, or my whole life. I cry out and say, Jesus, save me. Take me out of my hell and lead me into your heaven. Lead me into eternal life. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Can we do this? Can we, I know it just happened. Can we cheer for those who have accepted Christ today? Yeah. Yes. This morning, you have been led from death to life. And if you did that this morning, tell the person you came with, find one of us as pastors. We have new believers' Bibles for you. We want to follow up. It's very important. And so, with the power of the gospel presented this morning and songs sung and money given, let us stand together now and respond. And this is how we will respond. We communion. Communion is the great place where we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is where we come forward and say, I'm forgiven and I am seated. It says in scripture that if you are a Christian, you are welcome to this table. It says that if you are struggling with God, you are welcome to this table. If you're in sin, it says, repent and come to this table. It says if if you are a Christian and you're on the run and you don't want to deal with God, don't take this until you're ready. If you're not a Christian yet, don't take this because you've not said yes to the person that we've preached on this morning. But for all of us, let us come forward with great jubilation and say, thank you, Lord, for the profound work that you've done in my life. And can I ask every person who belongs to C4 or another church to do this? When you take communion this morning, can you also say out loud, I commit to the unity of the body of Christ. Pray it together. And then as we come forward, you know, when we do come forward, this is where we give to our care friend. There are little boxes and we give above and beyond 
at these moments so we can feed people who don't have enough food, pay rent, give free counseling. Like we are people, I'm asking you church, be lavish in your giving this morning, generous in your giving this morning so we can keep demonstrating in word and deed that our gospel is authentic. So let me pray and respond. Oh Lord, in this moment, bless these elements, the great symbols of your death and resurrection. Oh Lord, meet people as they come to communion. Oh Lord, generously move people to give to the poor and orphans among us and around us. Oh Lord, be glorified. We ask this in the name of the Father who called us, the Son who loves us, and the Spirit who makes us like Jesus. Amen.